Here's a deep thought for you. Why do farts smell so much worse when you're in the shower? And is it possible to make your allergies disappear? And let's talk about pain thresholds. Why do people have so much variation between them in terms of how much pain we can handle and we can't? We're going to be talking about all of this and, of course, so much more coming up in this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. I'm Linda Mariano. Let's get into it. Let's kick it off uh, with, you know, someone that's in Snowtown in oh. South Australia. Simone, what is your science question for Dr. Carl morning, this morning? Good morning, Hello. Um, my question is, you know, you fart normally, yep. smells normal. Why when you're in the shower or the bath and you drop your guts, it smells different? Um, I do not have the right answer. I've been thinking on this for a while. I've been trying to find answers. The best answer that I can think of is that normally when you fart, the way things are aimed is that the sort of gases and smells go in a certain direction and away from you. But in the shower, there's a lot of turbulence and the gas molecules, the, the smelling molecules might get carried on water up to your nose. I do not have the definitive answer. If somebody, this has been bothering me for years, Simone, I'm so glad you asked this. If somebody can look up Google Scholar, not regular Google, Google Scholar, with why do farts smell differently in the shower? They do. You are dead right, Simone, they do. And this is something that we are going to find out. If not by the end of this show, by next week we'll have the answer. <laughs> this is an important science question, Simone. Thank you you for calling to Ali from Glebe in New South Wales. You've got a science question this morning. You're on Triple J. What is it, Ali? I was curious why I get goosebumps on my arms and legs sometimes when I hear a particularly emotional song or if I'm having a conversation with a friend and they're talking about a particularly emotional feeling. I just I break out into these random goosebumps. Ah, it's a two-part answer. Part one, the sympathetic nervous system. Part two, evolution is not perfect, but just good enough. So as part of surviving in life, you've got a, a reflex called the sympathetic nervous system. And when it gets activated, so you come around a corner and you see the killer rabbit, your eyes, your pupils open wide open, the muscle gets extra blood, there's extra blood uh, to your brain, you're ready to fight, all that sort of stuff. And that gets activated automatically. And in your case, for some reason, it's being activated by the music. There's certain bits of music that send shivers down my spine and I think, oh, goody, 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 let me look at my arm. Oh, there they are, little goosebumps. So that's the second part of the answer. They're being tr your sympathetic nervous system is being triggered accidentally. Mm. So it's there if you see a killer dinosaur coming at you and accidentally... It's also there with certain types of music. It won't kill you. It won't reduce your life expectancy. It's just kind of annoying. Or in my case, it's an extra thrill because I'm thinking, I love this music and I've got these shivers running up and down my body. I'm getting two bunches of fun for free. You know what, Ali? Um, I actually did as part of a, a, an ABC TV show from last year, What Is Music? We did a full episode on why does certain music give you goosebumps and went through and did a bunch of different experiments. So it's... And what did you find? We found that it was certain things. So it was like um, a lot of it was nostalgia-based. So if you heard a song that very much reminded you of a time and place. Would it be a time and place that had a special significance yes, like your first absolutely. partner, a big breakup? Yeah, something? Yes. Yeah. So really? so one, was, one that I got was like a, a song that I listened to a lot when I was breaking up with someone. Um, there was a guy that did it as well and he got – 
goosebumps when he listened to a certain part of the Star Wars soundtrack. Well, that's a very important part of growing that up. That he oh, listened yeah. to that he said that he would watch over and over again with his dad when he was a really young boy. Oh, so it was like a bonding family So there was thing. a lot of nostalgia stuff, but then it was also certain types of chords and notes that um, a lot of music uses, uh, particularly classical music. Ah. So, Ali, if you're interested, look it up. on. It's on Triple J YouTube, the What Is Music series, and why does music give us goosebumps? So go to YouTube, Triple J, look up What Is Music series, and then the subset of that is yeah, uh, goosebumps. Yeah, goosebumps. And was it common that people had goosebumps? Yeah, it was quite common. Wow. Yeah, and it was a, a community thing as well if you were out enjoying music with other people. So it was a few different factors. Wow, so, so in addition to the Cloud Appreciation Society, we could start up a Goosebump Appreciation Society. We love goosebumps. Just before we were chatting to Simone from Snowtown and she was saying, Dr. Carl, why do farts smell worse in the shower? Can we please get to the bottom of it? Mm. We got a bunch of texts actually, including Ah. Kale in Woodburn. Um, Kale? Kale. Like the cabbage? Yeah, the cabbage texted in. Um, But kale can cause farts. Okay, it's just a coincidence. Okay, keep moving. (laughs) That's why Kale's a fart expert. Um, Saying farts... They smell worse in the shower if it's hot water only because of the heat and the steam amplifies smells. Like, for example, when you heat up your food, you can smell it, but when it's cold, it has next to no smell. I love that. And also uh, one from somebody called Beetle120 um, is because clothes act as a filter for the fart and you don't wear clothes in the shower. Oh, very good. God, fart experts galore this morning. Bring it on, man. Uh, Jack from Adelaide, what is your science question for Dr. Carl? Hey, I um, just wanted to find out if you um, take an aerosol can into equal pressure underwater and you cut it in half, what happens to the contents? Uh, by equal pressure, you mean where the pressure inside the tin, in, inside the tin, which might be say two atmospheres, is equal to the pressure outside, which is two atmospheres, which is twenty meters. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, firstly, there's pressure inside the tin. I don't know what it is in your car tire. It's about three atmospheres or two atmospheres. In the, we'll say in the tin, it's two atmospheres. Now, um, when you're in the water and you dive down you'll feel your ears begin to hurt and so you have to stop at that depth you are, put your fingers on your nose, blow hard, equalise the pressure and then keep on diving. And by the time you're down to 10 metres, that's one atmosphere. So every 10 metres is an atmosphere, so 10 me- 20 metres is two atmospheres. If you dive down to 20 metres with a tin of um, aerosol and then you puncture it, well, there's no driving force to make the contents of the tin go anywhere. Above ground, it'll go from two atmospheres just into the environment and it'll go outside. But down there, it's got no tendency to go anywhere, so it'll just sit there. And then as you come higher, as you reascend towards the surface, I'm guessing, I'm speculating on this, I'm guessing that the contents will gradually start diffusing out through the hole and by the time you're at the surface, they'll come gushing out at full pressure. Mm. And on the other hand, if you dive down to 30 metres, water will dive in because the pressure is higher than the pressure. The lesson from this is that normally stuff goes down a hill, a gradient, uh, etc. Right. Thank you for your call, Dr. Jake. Thank you, Dr. Amanda in Bendigo. One three hundred o triple five three six. You've given us a call this morning. What's your question, Amanda? 
I'm wondering if there's an explanation for why people feel pain in um, different ways, how how different our pain thresholds can be. And the second part to that is why some people feel pain in colour. Okay, part one, pain is a reflex and it's there to protect you from bad things and practically everybody on the, plane, on the planet has a pain, pain reflex, practically everybody. But we've found a family in Pakistan who do not feel pain and they normally are in the circus business and they normally die in their 20s of a broken bone poking through their skin which they didn't notice. It's due to an abnorm- abnormality in the sodium-potassium pumps on their cells. So we all have different... We, we all have a pain reflex except for these very rare people. Secondly, um, we only found the nerves for pain in the last 30 years. So we're still learning about it. So the bottom line is we don't know why people have different pain thresholds. It could be a combination of your life. So for example, suppose you lived a pampered life and everything was done for you. You didn't have to catch a bus because you'd travel in your private hired car with a driver. On the other hand, suppose you had to walk 20 kilometres to school every day in your bare feet. So you'd have a high pain threshold and then finally there's the genetics part of that then thirdly you mentioned why do you do you do this amanda do you see pain in colors no i have a child who does and he um can have incredible pain with a paper cut but he had a broken um arm last year and he was actually we had that broken arm for a few days and um and didn't and just said that it was he had a really red arm Oh, so the, did the arm look red to you or just to no, him? No, in, internally it felt red. It felt red. Okay. Uh, firstly, paper cuts are so nasty compared to a scalpel because a scalpel is stainless steel and dead sharp and nothing else there. Whereas paper, stop wincing, Dr. Linda. I'm just, I hate paper cuts so that, much. Yep. And, and, and paper cuts are bad because firstly, it's a blunt edge And secondly, there's normally a lot of crap. There's lots of little tiny particles, unlike a clean stainless steel scalpel blade, which then deposit in the wound and start causing extra pain immediately. Secondly, we're talking, I'm going to give you a new word, synesthesia, which means aesthesia is sensation, sin together. So all your sensations, sin, aesthesia, are jumbled. Um... Uh, we are taught that you have your five separate senses, colour and smell and taste, but if you lose your sense of smell, suddenly your your sensation of taste just goes out the window. So they're married together. We all have some degree of crossover. At At one extreme, you have musicians who, when they play, for example, on the piano, sure, they're hearing the notes, but they're also seeing bubbles of colour in front of them. And all they do is keep on varying what they do with their fingers and suddenly the bubbles of colour look really nice and and they're sort of ignoring the sound. So that's at one extreme and most of us have got some degree of melting. The average person can kind of experience it if you're falling asleep at night and just as you're falling asleep, a door slams or a car accelerates suddenly and in my case, instead of hearing just the car door slam, I also feel a ripple of sensation run down my body and I sort of experience a sort of a yellowish sort of colour. So we, so your son is just normal on that spectrum. 
You know, we're, we're just learning about it. Uh, we've got people at the University of Sydney doing research on it. Look up synesthesia, S-Y-N-A-S-T-H-E-S-I-A. is quite normal, but it's just poorly understood at this stage. And Richie from New South Wales, what's your one for Dr. Carl this morning? Hey, doctors. Hey, what's your question? Love the show. I uh, just want to know why when I tired or I go to bed late and I've got to get up in the morning, it's like a real struggle to get out of bed, but the same night if I've got to get up to get a drink or the dog's bark or go to the toilet, I can just bounce out of bed and like go to the toilet or walk to the fridge and it's real easy to get out of bed. Ah, I've uh, thought about this and this is my best speculation. If you're lying in bed with a full bladder, gradually the bladder starts filling up at the rate of about one mil per hour per kilogram of body weight. So if you weigh 60 kilograms, 60 mils an hour. And your capacity is about 50 or 60. Uh, Sorry, 400 or 500 mils. Now, we've been trained not to wee in bed. We've trained ourselves over the years, you know, beginning in primary school. And so... As you're asleep, on one hand, you're sleeping really nicely, but on the other hand, there's this sort of building up slow sensation saying, wake up, Richie, wake up, get out of bed. And then finally, you get to the stage where um, the impulses from your bladder are so strong that you gradually drift up and there you are. Okay, I've got to get out of this nice warm bed. Okay, I'll just walk to the bathroom, no big deal. But with the alarm clock going off, you can be in deep, deep sleep. And then suddenly he goes, bang, wake up, you're evil. You should go to work right now. Work for the fascist imperialist oppressor of the honest working class proletariat. Go to work. And you're thinking, but I was in deep sleep. I was down having really deep, deep sleep. And you've been woken up by the alarm clock. So you haven't had that gentle rise out. Oh, man, Richie, we feel you. one three hundred oh triple five three six. 0555 Uh Luke from Adelaide, you've got one about allergies this morning. What's your question for Dr. Carl? G'day, doctors. How you going? Doctor, well, thank you, Dr. Luke. Welcome. Um, I was just wondering, can allergies just disappear over time? Because I used to be really allergic to cats, like... I'd, um, if I was exposed to them, I'd get real swollen up, itchy eyes. I'd be sneezing like you wouldn't believe. And I just hadn't come because of that. I've just avoided them for ages. But then a couple of weeks ago, I went to a friend's place who had a cat and I was completely fine, like not even a runny nose, no, no trace of ever having allergies. And I was just wondering, like, I wasn't, it's not like I've been exposed to it so my body's adapted, like... Mm. So firstly, with allergies, they're really, really complicated. Anything to do with the immune system is. And secondly, we have learned that in some cases, tiny doses can make things worse. And in other cases, it can make things better. And in your case, you have trained yourself out by good luck. We do not fully understand. Your immune system, when when you've been conceived and you're floating around inside the uterus, you are immune... You, you are allergic to everything, including yourself. And then your heart gets created. It gets made. And then um, cells from the heart get presented or offered up to the immune system and any of the cells in the immune system that react to your heart get killed. So by the time you're born, you're not allergic to yourself anymore. And so it's a continual dynamic system. We don't have a good answer. We know it's real. You're not a freakazoid. You are real. And in your case, you're lucky that you managed to get away from being allergic to cats. That is lucky because I've gone the opposite way where I was never allergic to cats and now I am. Evolution ain't perfect. It's just good enough, man. Sarah in Torquay in Victoria, you're kicking us off right now. What is your question? Hey, doctors. 
Um, I really just wanted to know if um, Baltic Amber used on babies, if the, the healing properties of that are real. No. Simple answer. No. They've lied to you about it. And unfortunately, there have been cases where the kids have been allowed to play with the Baltic Amber, have broken it and have swallowed it. And that's nasty, uh, especially if it goes down the airways. This is a total con that it has any healing properties. On the other hand, it's really nice to look at. And my mother had some and gave some and we passed it through the family. It's really nice. Healing, no. Curing sunstroke, syphilis, varicose veins, bad handwriting, no. Nice to look at, yes. I'm sorry, it's a total con, Sarah. Okay, an easy answer for you, Sarah. Thank you for your call. Thank you. 1-300-0555-36. Uh, Shannon from Newcastle, what's your question for Dr. Carl this morning? Okay, well, um, I've been Googling because I've been experiencing sinus after having some filler put in my cheeks and I've seen some responses from doctors that say that, um, you know, the filler isn't anything to do with the sinus problems. There's been a few people complaining about this on the internet. So I was just wondering, is it possible that the filler is affecting my sinuses? It's Never had problems before. Yeah, look, it is possible. But the trouble is we need to have an identical Shannon who didn't go through the procedure who's living exactly the same life. So uh, what we have is forums on the internet and they can be a good way of alerting people in the medical field to problems that are arising. At this stage, I'd say, I don't know. I'd go back to an, I'd go to an ENT person and find out exactly what your sinus problems are. So that'd be through your GP. Do you have one GP who looks after you all the time? Well, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm more holistic, but I do have a GP, that's right, yeah. yeah. And so is it the same GP who looks after you all the time? No. Okay, in that case, you've got no doctor. You've got nothing. Because you, what you need is that continuity of care. So basically, we have no baseline. Mm. We need somebody who can follow you. And they would have said, oh, isn't that interesting? Your creatinine levels went up at the same time. So in the same way you have to do maintenance on your car, you have to do maintenance on your body. So every year, even though I'm in perfect health, I go to see my GP and I get the grease and oil change. At this stage, I'm saying we don't have enough information. See, see somebody who is simpatico and make a point of going to that one GP who has got so much knowledge in their head. And then that will give you maybe some help, maybe not, I don't know, but at least you're better off than just not having different GPs and certainly better off than getting your knowledge from the internet. Mm, thank you for your call, so Dr. I, I Shannon. It, I hope it gets better, Dr. Shannon. Josh from Stratford's in Victoria. What's your question? You're on Triple J. Hey, on doctors. Hey. Um, I had a question about the magma in the middle of the earth. Will that ever run out or how does it replenish itself and is that cavity getting bigger in the middle of the earth? Ah, okay, so what we have is the Earth about 12,500 kilometres across and then there's this incredibly thin skin of solid stuff which is kind of a bit like putting a sheet of paper around a soccer ball. It's that sort of thickness. So the solid bit of the Earth is in Australian terms, bugger all. Then underneath that we have sort of molten magma for a couple of thousand kilometres and then a ball of molten liquid iron and then right at the centre a ball of solid iron about two and a half thousand kilometres across. In that ball of solid iron are the radioactive elements, three of them, potassium, uranium and thorium and they're decaying and giving off heat and this heat floods up towards the surface and the combination of the heat coming from the core 
as well as the fact that we've got the sun in the middle of our solar system gives us the planet that we have today. The core is getting bigger. The solid core is going from solid... Uh, it's, it's getting expanding in size by one metre every year and eventually we get to the stage where we don't have molten magma in billions of years from now but we're, we're okay for a long time. In around 800 million years, the sun will have heated up so much that the surface temperature on the Earth will be over 100 degrees C and we will have gone somewhere else. So that's in 0.8 of a billion years, we'll, the, the surface temperature will be 100 degrees C and in 5 billion years, the Earth will get swallowed up by the sun and the, the solid core solidifying too early, that's not something to worry about. We've got lots of magma for a long time thanks to the radioactive decay of uranium, potassium and thorium. Hot times ahead, <laughs> Dr Josh. Uh, look, we've got a little update about... Ah. Remember uh, there was a guy that was calling before, we were speaking to him about how he had a cat allergy. Ah. Then he didn't... And he used to, you know get really allergic, hives, breakout, swollen face, didn't encounter a cat for a long time, encountered a cat recently and had no symptoms, not even a sneeze. Mm. Claire from Belgrave in ah. Victoria, you have kind of a, a bit of an opinion on this. What's yours, Claire? Yeah, um, I am also allergic to cats, always have been. Had the same thing where my eyes would swell up, hay fever, and my heart goes out to the guy because it's really average. But I had a doctor tell me that depending on the cat's blood type, it will determine their saliva and the amount of allergens in it. So when they're grooming themselves, um, that's the saliva is what you're allergic to, not the hair. So if the blood type is of a certain type, um, their saliva will be different. So you can actually find a cat with a blood type that you might not be allergic to. Wow. And then if you, yeah. So you yeah. can still and have I a cat. Potentially, potentially. Um, I know I have different allergies to different cats. Even if there's two in one house, I'll know which one I can and can't go near. Right. So I've found truth in that. Okay, look, if, uh, can somebody go to my tw Twitter feed and post on there the Wikipedia, sorry, the Google Scholar reference. So Google is just sort of random people saying opinions, but Google Scholar is a scientific medical engineering peer-reviewed literature. So if somebody can track down that report that relates, number one, cat allergies, to number two, the blood type of the cat, oh, man, I had never heard of this. Thank you so what much. What a great update, Dr. Claire. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Claire. I've got to find this. And Dr. Maddie from Wollongong, what's your question? So I've got a bit of a, an interesting one, actually. Um, I was recently diagnosed with a couple of sort of chronic illnesses, so fibromyalgia um, and chronic fatigue. Um, and after discussing everything about that, my doctor actually mentioned to me that a lot of women postpartum with these illnesses actually find themselves cured. So I was wondering if there's a connection between, like, the... Um, the hormones that go through a woman's body during pregnancy and the cure, or if it's something else entirely. Um, well, firstly, deeper sympathy for fibromyalgia. I've got friends who have had that. And also chronic fatigue. It is really debilitating and I have deeper sympathy for you. Secondly, when you're pregnant, it's not just hormones that change enormously, it's also the immune system because you are now carrying another life form that has DNA that belongs to you, no problems at all, and DNA that belongs to another human. Oh, my God. And so your immune system wants to react against that and in pregnancy, 
the immune system of the mother is throttled back so that she is not so going to get rid of the baby because it's got a different immune system. And there have been cases, and this is why they always do a pap smear at the beginning of a pregnancy, there have been cases where a woman has had a very slow-growing cancer on the cervix, very, very slow-growing, and once her immune system gets depressed, um, it grows so fast that she dies before she can deliver the baby. It takes off so fast. So your immune system is also affected. I'm not trying to be too gloomy here, but so it's not just hormones. It could be your immune system. But with these autoimmune conditions, which is fibromyalgia, which is one, chronic fatigue system syndrome, we don't know what's going on, but there are occasionally spontaneous recoveries. And we don't know what happens. And I really hope that one of those happens to you. Yeah, thank you for your call, Dr. Maddie. We've been chatting science with Dr. Carl. I'm Linda and Dr. Renee from Newcastle. You've got a science question. What is it? I do, yes. Um, I saw a lady on Instagram who's made a statement that we, that babies and adults should not drink cow's milk. And they can't drink cow's milk until over the age of 12 months. But she stated that, it, that we shouldn't drink it at all. Um, I just want to know, she's made health claims, I just want to know if there's any truth in what she's saying. Close to zero. If you are two-thirds of the world's population and you do not have that enzyme that mutated into the human race in Hungary 7,000 years ago and in Africa 4,000 years ago, then you can't drink milk as an adult. So this happened in the past and it gave people a tremendous advantage because not only when you had a cow could you drink the milk and then get enough nutrition from the milk in one year equal to killing the cow and eating it, you still had the cow at the end of one year. And this mutation began and then spread across the world. One third of the world has it, two thirds do not. So if you go to somebody in Asia, they can have 12 grams of lactose or maybe half a cup of milk and they'll be okay on average. Milkshake, forget it. For the rest of us, for the one third of the population that can drink cow's milk, go for it. It is such a good source of calcium. They are telling little porky pies or lies when they say that it's bad for you. Even if they have perfect teeth and wonderful Instagram on their photos, ab- ab- yep. even they, if they've got a filter lies. to bring home. People use a filter on Instagram? Yeah. I had no idea to make You them. use Facetune, Dr. Carl. I'll tell you about that <laughs> later. Thank you for your call, Dr. Renee. Yeah, Jenny drink from milk is good for you. Jenny from Lakes Entrance, what's your science question? Yeah, hi. I'm just wanting to know um, why when you're falling asleep do different parts of your body twitch? It's a leftover reflex called the morrow reflex. And if you get a brand new, freshly delivered newborn baby, say a day old, and then lay it on your forearm with the feet in your elbow and the head just in the palm of your hand, and you drop the baby a centimetre. And you're not going to hurt the baby, not one centimetre, but you just drop your hand one centimetre, and the baby's arms and legs should go out in all four directions, as though it's going back to its living in the tree's evolutionary past, and it's falling and wants to grab on something automatically. And if you do that to a newborn baby and it does it, you think, yeah, that bit's wide up properly, and you just go through the checklist. So it's a hangover from the past. It's a hangover from um, our evolutionary past and it's called the hypnogogic, H-Y-P-N-O-G-O-G-I-C, hypnogogic jerk, and it's perfectly normal. So we just do it a bit when we're falling asleep. Yeah, another case of evolution, just having leftover stuff. Ah. Yeah, it's good enough. Dave from Perth, what's your question? Hello. Hi. Uh, Good morning, doctors. 
Dr. Dave, welcome. And your question or comment? Uh, I'm just uh, curious about how, be it a cat or a dog or a bird, that some look in the mirror and go, hey, that's me. Or other ones just go, oh, I don't care, I've got other things to do. Well, that's a really deep question in the field of psychology when we're thinking about this weird thing called consciousness. How do I know that I'm Carl but not Linda and vice versa? How do we know that I'm me? How do we know that an animal knows that it's this animal but not another animal? And we've come up with a really rough test which is called the red dot painted on the forehead test. So what you do is you get an animal, you put a red dot in their forehead, and we've done it with dolphins. don't know how you make it stick in water. And then you give them a mirror and they go and they look at it and they think, what's going on there? And they'll try and rub it in some sort of way. And we've, cut, we, we, we've thought that this is a proof that what you're seeing in the mirror is you and that we're then relating it to, well, maybe they've got consciousness, whatever consciousness is. Now, if you've got a spare five years of your life, go and try and work it out. I, I've tried reading up on it. It's too complex for me. But we think it's related to them having some degree of self-awareness. It is deep Dave from Perth. Hey, Bryce from Newcastle, you've got a science question for Dr. Carl this morning. What's your question, Dr. Bryce? Uh, g'day, guys. Um, just looking at cellular respiration... Uh, producing water and I was just curious where that water goes because when you increase respiration you you should be producing more water but we get dehydrated. Right so um, respiration refers a specific term used in physiology and it's related to getting oxygen into your body running it past little critters that invaded us about two billion years ago little critters called mitochondria and they then get the oxygen and do a whole bunch of things and give us energy. And the energy is called ATP and water is produced. Okay, now here, let, let me blow your mind. Um, <coughs> each day, on Ready average... Ready to blow our minds. <coughs> here we go. Each day, on average, 50,000 litres of water will cross the membranes in your body. 50 tonnes. A backyard swimming pool. And it goes across and it comes back many times a second. So the total weight or mass... It's around 50 tonnes. So the water that you produce from respiration from the mitochondria making energy, that then goes across a membrane, it goes here, it goes there. And you, So on the outside you might think, gee, that person looks boring. Inside they're a frantic hive of activity. And then you can start thinking about the body as being broken up into different compartments. Water inside the cells, water outside the cells. And then you can then think of other compartments which are actual physical compartments like the bladder and the whole thing gets really messy. So I'll just stop right there. So where does the water go from respiration into that general pool of 50,000 litres of water that moves here and there across your body every day? Wow. Best of luck with studying. Are you studying physiology, Bryce? Uh, actually, science teacher. Ah, well, I'm happy to do a free science Q&A with your class at school. Cost you nothing. Uh, go to my homepage, drcarl.com. Look up, would you like a free science Q&A? And we can discuss it in greater te- depth because I'll have then done some more homework. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. How Bryce. nice. Let's squeeze in one small question yep. from Jason from Canberra. You've got one about heart transplants. What's your question? Uh, yes, good morning, doctors. Um, I'd just like to inquire, is it possible to have, say, a 20-year-old heart put into a 50-year-old body or any other organ for that matter? You ha- you can, but with our current technology, we're stuck with the position that the DNA is different 
from this other transplanted heart or other organ. Your immune system will try to knock it off and therefore you have to take immunosuppressive drugs for a really long time. We're coming up with better technologies. We're not quite there yet. So it does happen quite often that uh, unfortunately um, with motorbike people in the early days of not wearing motorbike helmets, the people in casual used to say, we love motorbike people who don't wear helmets because they've got really healthy young hearts that we can transplant. So oh. wear your motorbike helmet all the time. Oh, man. Oh, so just wear, wear your seatbelts, you know, life's dangerous. Okay, so you, you, it does happen. Uh, an older person can get a heart from a younger person, but they've got to take the immunosuppressive drugs. Thank you for your call, Dr Jason. Dr Carl, that's pretty much taking us to the end of our hangout time. Our hangout time. We we're, were in a country where you can just take, <laughs> wake up in the morning, put on your swimming cozies if you're within 800 metres of the beach and walk there in your swimming cozies and not die. Oh, yeah, look how happy he is to be back from Antarctica where he's been run over by blizzards. Are you going to be back here next week or um, what? If you'll have me. Yeah, all right. Oh, thank you, my BFF. That is Dr. Carl chatting science with me and you. I'm Linda Mariano. And if you do enjoy learning and hanging out, then please check out another podcast that I host called Inspired. It's where we hang out, not with scientists, but with musicians. And we talk to them about the making of some of our favourite songs. In a recent episode, I spoke to Melbourne artist Ali Bada about the making of her track, Girly Bits. As always, we go deep on the making of songs and Ali was telling us about the origin of some of the very striking lyrics in this track. You don't understand what it's like to be a man that's something a boyfriend had said to me like two years early and I literally never thought about that line till then. I just sang it and I was like, wow, where did that come from? I hadn't thought about that asshole for ages. Always really fun, always very honest chats. So if you'd like to, you can check that out. And look, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you soon. You don't